are two things we shouldn't discuss. But the title of a new book asks the question, how would Jesus vote? Hmm, sounds intriguing, doesn't it? What does the author have to say about this topic? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, we will hear Pat interviewing guest author, Daryl Bach, discussing his book, How Would Jesus Vote? If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Pat with part two of this interview with Daryl Bach. You have more people participating in the decisions that get made, the way in which laws are enacted, the way in which they are supported, and you uphold the rights of the minority in the face of the majority uh, by doing this. And so they were very conscious about the potential abuse of power. In fact, the whole Declaration of Independence was a reaction to what they thought was the excessive power of the state as exercised by the king. And so they, you know, they wanted a kind of representation that the dispersed power and forced people um, to actually work together to build the society that they lived in with an awareness of the variety of participants that were represented in making that happen. Yeah, and I believe that not only did they learn from history, but I believe they also understood the sinful nature of man, and you put them in a position of too much power, uh, the absolute power corrupts absolutely every time. That's right. No, that, that's very much where it came from, was very much an appreciation of the tendency that, that we have to engage in a power in ways that actually take advantage of other people and, and in ways that are harmful. You know, there are, there are numerous quotes that I have in the early part of the book coming from this early period in which the statement is made that uh, about the problems that individuals Individuals have. I mean, I've got one here from John Adams as he's defending the uh, Constitution. He says, The nature of mankind is one thing, and the reason of mankind another. The first has the same relation to the last as the part of the whole to the part. The passions and appetites are part of the human nature as well as reason and moral sense. In the institution of government, it must be remembered that although reason ought always to govern individuals, it certainly never never did since the fall, and never will till the millennium, and human nature must be taken as it is, as it has been, and will be. And what he's complaining about there is the tendency people have to be selfish, to abuse power, and to not do what's best. And he says, that's been around a long time, and it will continue to be around a long time, so we have to build our government in such a way that we recognize that and, and attempt to deal with it. Now, that's pretty unique, I think, in the understanding of human nature and building a government of check and balances. Is, is that unique uh, to, the, to the U.S. at that time? Well, you know, what's interesting is is that there was a Frenchman, Alexander de Tocqueville, who wrote about the American experiment uh, as it was being created, who talked about the uniqueness of what it was that had been designed in the American government. And 
And that was one of the things that he was pointing out. And he also pointed out that the only way in which it's going to be workable and continue to work is if the society keeps at its base this kind of sense of virtue as well as an awareness of the tendency of people to be destructive, to keep that in balance. That's actually one of the tensions that we live in in a fallen world. We have the capability of being virtuous. We have the capability of being generous, but we also have the capability of taking advantage of other people and abusing them. And so the potential for injustice and our understanding of our proclivity to go there actually ends up being a check, if we're aware of that, against an excessive sense of freedom that says I can do whatever I want, because sometimes when I do what I want, I'm actually doing something that's damaging. Yeah, now, Daryl, in one of your chapters, you talk about government being too big or too small. You know, what does the Bible teach about the role of government? I mean, should the government be involved in education and health care and business? I mean, what does the Bible teach about the role of government? Well, the point of this chapter is to say that the Bible actually doesn't endorse any particular form of government. We see theocracies, we see monarchies, we see a variety of ways in which people live without having specific endorsement of how big or how small government should be. And what I argue in the chapter is, is that more than thinking about the size of the government, how big or how small it is, what the Bible asks people to do is to think about the values that are infused in whatever governmental system exists. In other words, to think about the relational dimensions and the way in which people relate to one another, whether that structure is a monarchy or a a theocracy or perhaps something else, actually next to no government at all. I mean, so... So the point that I'm trying to make here is that if you listen to a lot of our political discourse, it starts off with the decision about, well, our government is either too big or too small, and there's not enough discussion of values. And so uh, the point of the chapter was to try and flip that emphasis and get people to reflect on big government that is compassionate might have more merit than a small government that's not, and vice versa. That's a great point that you bring up there. Really enjoyed that chapter. Well, what role does the church play in relation to the government? We've had a situation in church history where the church actually kind of ruled over the government. And we've had other situations where the church just completely withdraws. What is the relationship between church and government? Well, it's not very different than the citizen's role, which is to be, uh, I think, a voice arguing for the presence of virtue and values in, in governmental systems and asking questions about, you know, what does it really constitute to love my neighbor well as we think about whatever policy we're considering? And how do we balance out the tensions that we see in constructing our laws because usually the debates, this is really, really important to the whole book. Usually the debates that we have on policy are defending different and competing biblical values that are in tension with each other. And so, for example, on gun control, just to use an example, on the one hand, the idea that I have the right to protect my family and property is something Scripture does recognize. It has different penalties in the Old Testament for someone who comes into your house at night who you kill versus the person who you 
kill in daylight under those circumstances. It recognizes, it, it recognizes different situations. But we also recognize the importance of handling weapons responsibly, that the Scripture teaches, you know, we're supposed to be people who seek peace and people who, who seek societal stability. And so you just don't get to do anything you want with the power that you have access to. So how do you balance those two things? And, of course, what we get in our debate is we get the people who say, I have the right to a gun. You know, that's the Second Amendment right on the one hand. And then we have the people who are on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps a little more completely pacifist, although I think that's harder to do in the United States. We've got so many guns that have been around for so long, there's no way you're going to clean those all up. But my point is, is that you've got people arguing all on one side or all the other, and the conversation that we need to have is, what's the best way to balance these values? I make the point in the chapter on gun control that uh, we ask people to get a license to drive a car because we recognize that a car handled irresponsibly can do damage and it and it can become a weapon. So why should we think that we handle guns, which are intentionally designed to be a weapon, any differently? What's wrong with thinking about good background checks? What's wrong with asking the question, is someone psychologically stable enough to exercise this kind of power and right? And when I talk to people who live outside the United States who don't understand our laws and the way they're constructed, they are completely bamboozled, I think would be the best word, for the way we handle guns here. And and it's almost unprecedented in relationship to anywhere else in the world because of the amount of lack of control we have on the presence of guns in our midst. I see. Now, Daryl, you state that the Bible does not tell us about government structure, but it does teach us how to live together in a healthy society. Uh, What are those principles that should guide us? Well, I mean, the core, most core principles are ultimately a devotion to God, and secondly, a devotion and a care for one another, and in some cases, even a level of respect, and by that I mean for the person, not necessarily for a person's position, but the person, in living together side by side with someone who disagrees with you. Someone like a Daniel. Okay, who functioned as a government official in Babylon. Now, Babylon wasn't exactly the most outstanding civilization ever created in the history of man. And yet he's functioning in that government, and his personal ethics and the way he contributed in that government reflected his religious convictions. He was a good citizen, if you want to think of it, about it that way, responsibly so. And even when he reacted against unjust religious laws in Babylon, he took the consequences of the violation to the law that he was undertaking in his religious protests, that kind of thing. So you get this respect for some level of diversity in order to try and keep as much peace as you can, and yet at the same time, at a personal level and at a religious community level, standing up for your distinctiveness. Now, Darrell, you state that a, a society should seek the common good of the people, and the biblical principle that guides us is to love your neighbor as yourself, and you state there are three anchoring points, stewardship, love that pursues justice, and accountability. Explain those for us. Well, the stewardship is the idea of the creation mandate, that God has asked us to manage the creation well. 
and in managing the creation well, that means we do a decent job of taking care of one another, providing environments where people can, you know, pursue a job, uh, have uh, have their welfare taken care of, you know, have home, shelter, food, you know, basic what we consider today what we call basic human rights. So that's the stewardship part. The love that pursues justice is one that we've talked about a lot. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about justice, social justice, that kind of thing. That makes us sensitive to people who are different than us. It makes sure that we don't pursue rules and laws where one group gets to take advantage of another, that kind of thing. It works against things like oppression and racism and and those kinds of areas. And then the accountability is this check on total liberty that we were talking about earlier. That freedom, when it's undisciplined, becomes license and can become very destructive very easily. You know, there's a line where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, everything is permitted to me, but not everything is beneficial. And so wisdom in terms of accountability says, I'm going to try and do that which is only beneficial, not do that which I may be permitted to do, because although everything is permitted, not everything edifies. And so that that passage ends with saying, do not seek your own good, but the good of the other person. That's a core value about accountability, my accountability to my neighbor, if you will, before God, that is a core value that should drive the way we think about the society we create and the laws that we make. And, you know, it's clear from what you're saying here that God's universal moral law here, so belief in God and the moral law of God is essential for a society to be healthy and thriving society. Or at least an appeal to someone who, let's say, doesn't have a religious conviction, at least an appeal to the wisdom for the sake of society stability that we have a, a greater respect for one another than when we just take our own interests into account. Folks, we're talking with Dr. Daryl Bach and his new book here, How Would Jesus Vote? And actually, we've just skimmed the surface of this book, about 13 chapters in here. Actually, what we've been talking about in our interview is really only over the first three chapters, really, here. You know, That's correct. Yeah, there's a host of issues you cover here, from economics to gun control, immigration, war and peace, education. Let's just touch on one, perhaps, so you could show us how to think through this issue. Big one here right now in Hawaii and in the countries we're heard in education. Mm-hmm. What are the principles that should guide us on education? Well, this chapter is in part about globalization and dealing with the reality of the diversity of our world and the way in which education should prepare us not just for the you know the nitty-gritty you know uh, you know English grammar and math and and that kind of thing but really help us think through understanding uh, the different kinds of people that we'll meet in the world and what drives and motivates them to be who they are that kind of thing to think about the character that people have, the what motivates them to act the way that they do, particularly in the context of different standards and worldviews that they may have, that kind of thing. You know, I have a subsection here called education is about more than achievement tests. And it's wrestling with, you know, what is the common good? How do I develop an understanding about people who think differently than I do? You know, how, how do I help them understand and negotiate a world in which the thing that drives 
drives people to act in certain ways is very much a product of the societies that they come out of that are different than my own societies, that kind of thing. And so developing an education that helps you understand people is part of what makes for a good education. Yes, you know, I think Aristotle said he's not afraid of the common criminal but one he's afraid of is the acute rascal, the highly intelligent person, highly educated, but with really no moral compass to guide him in how he's going to use his intelligence there. He says that's the most destructive one. And uh, Ron Nash and Alan Bloom and others said uh, our educational system at least kind of designs that acute rascal, a highly intelligent person, but really with no moral guidelines as to how to use all that information that they have gleaned through the educational system. Yeah, that's a that's what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about hollow men. That it's the person who knows mechanistically how to do business or go through life, but really doesn't have, as I said earlier, a kind of soul that makes an effort to connect and understand the people that he's interacting with as he does that. He strictly does it on a, on a utilitarian basis or on thinking about how he can get ahead, you know, those kinds of concerns and questions as opposed to thinking about the impact of proceeding in that way and those kinds of things, as well as developing a sensitivity for why someone who's different than him may be different than him and why they think that way, those kinds of things. I mean, it takes a lot more work, to be honest, to think about those kinds of things, but in the long run, it's better for everybody. Yes, you know, that was a great chapter. You know, since we're we got a little bit of time here before we close. Just hit one more issue real briefly here. Race, that's one you're seeing big here in our country. Tell us about how to handle the race issue. Well, as I mentioned, I, I, part of the point of the book, I, I didn't say this explicitly in the book. This is something that I've seen since I've written it, is that there really are different kinds of issues. There are some in which there's an inherent tension that needs to be, or a set of tensions that need to be negotiated out. And the trick is not to cherry pick on those tensions, but actually to ask, what, how do you balance them? What's the relationship to, uh, between them? Immigration is one that I think a classic one that fits into that category. Nation has a right to its borders on the one hand and to determine what kind of people it's going to be. But there's an explicit call in scripture for people to be compassionate to the outsider. So how do you balance those two things? Race is in a different category. On race, everybody agrees that racial reconciliation is a wonderful ideal that we ought to pursue. They understand inherently that when you combat tribalism with racial reconciliation, you're on a path towards peace. And that's a good thing. The trouble with race is, is that we just struggle how to get there. And we're back to what we were talking about earlier. If I don't understand the differences between people, the different experiences that they have, what makes them the way they are, why some people are skittish operating in our society and other people trust how our society operates. If we don't negotiate our way through that very difficult terrain in conversation and in an effort to mutually understand one another, we will never untangle ourselves enough to really move in a serious way towards racial reconciliation. You know, when I interview African Americans for my podcast, and I did this at the beginning of one of my podcasts with a very close African American friend, I asked him this question. I said, tell me as an Anglo, what I don't get as an Anglo about being black in America. 
It was just an open-ended question. And it was an invitation for him to speak into the difference of what his experience is as a black person in America versus my experience as a white in America. And, and the experience, most cases, is very different. And so he talked into that, and then we talked our way through in this podcast, on Racial Reconciliation, what those differences and understanding those differences means. And so it's that kind of... Um, ground-level conversation that is a starting point for this kind of reconciliation. And it means I've got to be a good listener. My role in that conversation is not to defend my experience or to defend my point of view. My role in that conversation is to listen and try and hear where the other person is coming from. That's a step towards reconciliation. A step towards reconciliation, a first step is understanding and developing a kind of mutual understanding. And that requires, you know, two people, takes two to tango. It requires two people doing a better job of listening to each other. Yeah, fantastic. You know, Dr. Bach has numerous issues he covers in this book, healthcare, immigration, gun control, foreign policy, and and more. So we just touched on a couple here. Now, Daryl, you know, as we bring it to a close, uh, we got a lot of pastors and Christian leaders that listen to our show and, you know, give them some advice how they should be teaching and preaching on this issue of faith and politics. You have some pastors, I just, you know, was in a church the other day, all he seems to do is just bash on the political leaders here and all that's going wrong. Then you got pastors on the other side who say, well, just preach the Bible and, you know, kind of an isolationist kind of mentality is preach the Bible and everything's going to be okay. What's the balance then? And how should, you know, what advice would you give in addressing the issue with their congregations? Well, I think the thing that you've got to address is what most people inherently feel but don't talk enough about, and that is we live in a very messy world. It's messy because it's fallen, and the decisions and the choices that we have are full of these tensions. I actually think helping people to see these tensions and beginning to appreciate why each side of the ideological divide takes some of the position that they take while also being critical about what they're missing in taking that position. Almost being like a conscience for people in terms of what's going on in the world. Not to say that we have our entire act together, because there are things that we can learn in these conversations as well. But just to step back and saying, rather than hitching my horse to a particular party or a particular way and closing my eyes to those things that I see that I know are problematic, actually being honest about the fact that when you live in a fallen world, things aren't perfect, and here are the tensions that you face, and here's what you've got to wrestle with. So the whole point of the book, actually, try to show Christian people who are thinking about these things kind of a way to have this conversation that's different than the way we've had it, and to hope that in that there are doors open and possibilities opened up for different ways of engagement that actually allow us the possibility of thinking through what bridges we might build uh, towards one another and where might we be able to function better as a society as a result. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Daryl Bach, New Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and also he is the director of the Center of Cultural Engagement there at Dallas Theological Seminary. Daryl, if people want more information about you and the Center for Cultural Engagement and more information on these ideas that you're talking about, where can they go to get more information? 
Well, on the ideas, I mean, it's the book, I and mean, there's there's no other place for it. I mean, it, it's all it's it's there. So the book is uh, How Would Jesus Vote, and you can get it through Amazon or, or or any distribution. I think many Christian stores, if they don't have it, can get access to you. As far as the center goes, the name of the center is the Hendricks Center, and if you go to the Dallas Theological Seminary website, which is www.dts.edu, which is the general site, and then uh, you look for the Hendricks Center, which comes up under can come up under under the DTS family under the departments tab that will take you to the Hendricks Center and you can find out about what we're about you'll get to the table podcasts which we do on a weekly basis release every Tuesday as well as the conferences that we hold and that kind of thing yes uh, Dallas Theological Seminary one of the finest theological seminaries in the world I'm a graduate of Dallas Seminary as long as and along with many other great graduates as well, an outstanding school. Well, Daryl, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers and for your wonderful book, How Would Jesus Vote? Well, thank you for having me. It's been a joy as always and look forward to doing it again. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.